do we want to just go straight into the show? I like to leave a little space for banter, uh, you know, because we need uh, little sound bites for the front of the episode. So if you make it a little bit meta and you talk about, wow, we need a sound bite for the front of the show. Then... Right. And I, I personally love sound bites. I think they're such a fun little uh, uh, thing to add to the, uh, to the episode. Um, I'm so glad they exist and we can create them so naturally. I know. Yeah. I, I've always said the same thing. Hello everyone, and welcome to Mandatory Media, a show about all the media you should have studied, but probably didn't. I'm Brett, I'm a poet and scholar whose article on John Milton's Comus was published in the Oswald Review. Also joining me are... Hi everyone, I'm David. I am a writer with a little bit of experience in a lot of different things, but I mainly focus on film and popular media. Oh, that's me. Uh, hi, I'm Seth. I'm a wannabe film critic, a student of the theater, and a general lover of the arts. Today's episode, we're covering Paradise Lost by Aaron Shields. As always, we won't shy away from spoilers. Take care if you haven't read it or seen it. I guess it's a place where you might have read or seen it, as we will be discussing major plot points and themes. And also... We'll also be spoiling some bits of John Milton's Paradise Lost, so be warned if you haven't read that 17th century epic yet. Also, spoilers for the Bible. Um. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what? We're just going to spoil the first couple chapters of Genesis. If you haven't yeah. read Genesis 1 through 3, maybe do that real quick before reading or before listening to this episode. But once again, you've had, like, what, a millennia to read that, so... At least. Mm -hmm. That's on the conservative side, though. <laughs> yeah, you've had a few. How old is, like, Genesis? Well, which chapter of Genesis? Um, Because you get into the textual criticism and, like, the James yeah. and the priestly source and the, all of those kinds of things. There's lots of shenanigans going on in Genesis. And like different versions from different parts of the ancient Middle East. And... Mm -hmm. Okay, it's final version, the version that's in the Jewish and the Christian scriptures is from around 400 BCE. Okay. But parts of it could have been written as early as 1400 BCE. Mm-hmm. And if you are Harold Bloom, you might go as far as to say that it was written by Bathsheba. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. He was what joking when he said that. But... Oh, okay. I was like, this seems I was like, this is a, a theory I've never heard before. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, it's Harold Bloom though, so I'm ready. Like, lay it on me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. You know, in my introduction, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm a student of the theater. Because like that's what I'm doing, right? I'm doing my degree in theater. But two out of the three plays we've done or now doing, Brett's picked. Mm. I only picked one of them. Yeah. So I'm feeling a little insecure about that. Oh, okay. I need to pick more plays. <laughs> Stop being such a good podcast host, Brett. Uh, 
Well, everyone knows that the play is where we get the youth to watch our podcast. Absolutely. Exactly. Godzilla? No. No one likes Godzilla. People like plays. People like Shakespeare and Milton. Yeah, and they do. And shields. And that is broadly reflected in our culture so well, which is the reason why movies tank all the time and <laughs> are overwhelmed with funding. You're in a new golden age of theater. Uh, local universities are not shutting down their theater programs. <laughs> Stage actors are the ones that make millions of dollars, right? It's yeah, yeah, 100%. Movie actors are the ones who can barely scrape by sometimes. Let's talk about Aaron Shields, who is a contemporary Canadian playwright whose work often reimagines classical literary texts through a feminist lens. She is perhaps best known for her play, If We Were Birds, which reimagines book six of Ovid's Metamorphoses, which in 2011 won the Governor General's Award for English Language Drama. Her more recent drama, though, and today's subject, is Paradise Lost, which similarly reimagines John Milton's epic of the same name, and which was shortlisted for the same award. So that's a little intro to Aaron Shields, but who is John Milton and his, what's his book about? Well, in the introduction to the play, Paul Stevens calls Milton's Paradise Lost the single greatest poem in the English language, which is a very large claim, and I don't know if I would agree with it, because I mean, I love Milton. You're, it'll be very difficult to find someone who loves Milton more than I do, unless it were a professional Milton. <laughs> but I feel like I'd put something like Hamlet or King Lear above Paradise Lost. Like, to say that it's the best is a large claim. It's definitely in the very small handful of the best. But anyways, Stevens continues... In 12 books, each ranging from about 600 to 1,000 lines, Milton explains things we'd only half understood or perhaps glimpsed at sorry, or perhaps glimpsed at through a glass darkly. He raises our consciousness. No work of art enables us to better understand the baffling complexity of evil. And really what Milton's poem is about is how the world has become the way it is, why there is suffering and tragedy in the world, why good thing or why bad things happen to good people, especially with the problem of there being, if you're a Christian like Milton was, an all-powerful, all-good God who rules the world and providentially governs it. Milton's answer in Paradise Lost was freedom, which God created to allow his creatures to have a meaningful relationship with himself and with one another and to have that mysterious thing of love, but which also can be abused. And so Milton's epic is really a poem about the way that humans abuse free will and fall out of their original union with God. But anyways... Actually, you know what, before we move on to Aaron Shields, do you guys have any questions about Paradise Lost or John Milton? Okay, so Stevens calls it the greatest poem in the English language. 
it's how he begins his his introduction to the book or to, to the print edition um which i mean i don't know i i i can't speak to the validity of that but i don't know if hamlet or lear would count as the greatest poem because they're not poems they're primarily plays before they're poetic i would dispute that but that's okay well listen sometimes brett can be wrong about things <laughs> <laughs> I, I think one person is a self-described student of the theater, the other person is not, so I don't know. <laughs> one person has chosen two plays for this podcast. <laughs> and it wasn't me. That is, yeah. Listen, but, you know, I, I don't think that dramas and poems are mutually exclusive categories. And Harold Bloom calls Hamlet Poem Unlimited. So, huh. curious. Well, if Bloom said it, I'll agree with him. Yeah, I, I'm holding up the book, but I have my background blurring on, so you can't see it. But the book is called Hamlet, Poem Unlimited, which, of course, is a phrase he gets from Hamlet itself. I mean, I'm sure he quotes it as an epigraph. Um, so Polonius says, the best actors in the world, either for tragedy, comedy, history, pastoral, pastoral, comical, historical, pastoral, tragical, historical, tragical, comical, historical, pastoral, seen individual or poem unlimited. <laughs> I, I, one of my favorite Shakespeare, this is not related at all to Milton or this play, but one of my favorite Shakespeare characters is Polonius. It's just so entertaining. And I mean, Milton loved Shakespeare. Shakespeare was one of Milton's main influences. He wrote a poem that got, I believe his first publication was a poem praising Shakespeare, which got published in one of the folios after Shakespeare's death. Mm. And actually recently... I believe it was discovered, one of the early editions of Shakespeare, that had Milton's own marginalia. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. So, of course, I've read through that because it's now online, and there's yeah. not really that many notes, but it's really exciting to see the kind of passages that Milton would put a mark by. Did he have to, like, get someone to oh, whoops, like, read it to him? Because he was blind. Yeah. Okay. I was gonna say that exact same thing. I, I was gonna like I I heard this like legend or maybe it's a Tumblr post online about <laughs> uh, Milton being blind and essentially dictating the entire Paradise Lost line by line. Oh yes. Okay. So I'm glad you brought this up because I didn't want to make this all about Milton, but I'm always happy to talk about Milton. <laughs> so Milton had his eyesight as a young man, but he went blind as an adult. So when he was reading Shakespeare initially, he would have been able to read it and mark it up with his own hands. Mm. But when he went, but when he grew up and wrote Paradise Lost as an adult, he would have had people read works to him and he would have dictated his poem Paradise Lost to others 
who would then write it down. There's one early biographer who said that he asked to be milked each morning. Huh. <laughs> you know, for for a guy who's got maybe one of the greatest poems in the English language, he could you could use a little little coaching on the word choice there. Oh well, I mean, here's the thing. He had beautiful ways of describing it, too. Like, let me just pull up a version of Paradise Lost. Let's see. I bet Gutenberg has Paradise Lost. If answerable style I can obtain of my celestial patroness who deigns her nightly visitation unimplored and dictates to me slumbering or inspires, easy my unpremeditated verse. Since first the subject for heroic song pleased me long choosing and beginning late. So you have him describing there the muse, his celestial patroness coming to inspire him with this work, which is better. Or if you go to book three of Paradise Lost, this is from the beginning of book three, which is Milton's transition from describing Hell to describing heaven. Hail, holy light, offspring of heaven firstborn, or of the eternal co-eternal beam, may I express thee unblamed, since God is light, and never but an unapproached light dwelt from eternity, dwelt then in the bright effluence of bright essence in create. Or hearst thou rather pure ethereal stream, whose fountain who shall tell, before the sun, before the heavens thou wert, and at the voice of God, as with a mantle didst invest the rising world of waters, stark and deep, one from the void and formless infinite. The I revisit now with bolder wing, escape the Stygian pool, though long detained, in that obscure sojourn while in my flight, through utter and through middle darkness born, with other notes than to the Orphean lyre, I sung of chaos and eternal night, taught by the heavenly muse to venture down the dark descent, and up to reascend, though hard and rare. The I revisit safe, and feel thy sovereign vital lamp, but thou revisit'st not these eyes that roll in vain, to find thy piercing ray, and find no dawn. So thick a drop serene hath quenched their orbs, or dim suffusion veiled. Yet not the more cease I to wander where the muses haunt, clear spring or shady grove or sunny hill, smit with the love of sacred song, but chief thee scion, and the flowery brooks beneath, that wash thy hallowed feet and warbling flow, nightly I visit, nor sometimes forget those other two equaled with me in fate, so were I equaled with them in renown. Blind Thamiris and blind Myonides, and Tiresias and Phineas, prophets old. Then feed on thoughts that voluntary move harmonious numbers, as the wakeful bird sings darkling, and in shadiest covert hid tunes her nocturnal note. Thus with the year seasons return, but not me returns, day or the sweet approach of even or morn, or sight of vernal blooms or summer's rose, or flocks, or herds, or human face divine, but cloud instead, and ever during dark, surrounds me from the cheerful ways of men, cut off and for the book of knowledge fair, presented with a universal blank, of nature's works to me expunged and raised, and wisdom at one entrance quite shut out. So much the rather thou, celestial light, shine inward, and the mind through all her powers irradiate,
There plant eyes on mist from thence, purge and disperse, that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. <sighs> that was a mouthful, but it was gorgeous. Mm. So that's Milton kind of yeah. associating God creating the light of the world to God inspiring this divine light of illumination and inspiration within his mind so that he can see the wonders of paradise lost which he is to write even though he himself is blind and cannot see the world yeah. which he wants rejoice to see mm. and of course you well i say of course hopefully you remember that i quoted a small part of this when we talked about Keats's O to a Nightingale, because that's where he gets the word darkling. Yes. Yes. I was yes. I was gonna mention that. I was like, darkling. I feel like we've talked about that before. It's all come together now. It's all one big thing. <laughs> yes. Uh, if I was prepared, I'd probably quote Shelley's line about the poem that all people of all nations work to create, but I'm, I'm not going to go try to find something from the middle of Shelley now. Honestly, smart move. <laughs> yes, but so that's kind of what Milton did in his old age. He he associated his blindness with um, people like Myonides, which is the word for Homer, because Homer was blind, according to tradition, as well as other classical and biblical prophets. Right. So Milton very much sees himself as this prophetic poet. And but of it, course, the prophet from Children of Dune is blind. Mm -hmm. You see, that's part of the same tradition. <laughs> it's the archetype of the blind yeah. prophet. Being blinded, and then, but you can see these incredible sights. Mm -hmm. I just want to put Frank Herbert and Milton on the same level, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah, but there is the less fortunate side where you get stories of things like Milton having his daughters read to him in his blindness in several languages, none of which they understood. Wow. Which is unfortunate for them, but it was nice of them. Shout out to Milton's daughters. Yeah. And you can read a language that you don't understand. Like, you just got to read this out loud. Yeah, you just kind of pronounce the words, but don't know what they mean. And I guess Milton would correct them if they did it wrong. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. I guess if you've been doing it for a while, you kind of get the sense of how is this, this German word, how is it supposed to be pronounced with these letters together even if you have no idea what it means yeah mm. because milton knew several languages mm. but of course he did. like he was one of the most exceptional linguists of his time but he was oliver crump he was oliver cromwell's latin secretary oh really huh. yeah also known as his secretary of foreign tongues interesting you got your secretary of foreign affairs and now you've got your secretary of foreign tongues New cabinet position just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so that's Milton. Any more Milton questions? I'll uh, try to be briefer in answering them, if there are any. 
not at the moment, but I am eager to talk about this play. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, back to Aaron Shields's play, Paradise Lost. So, Aaron Shields adapted Milton's epic for the theater, which is interesting because Paradise Lost, when Milton wrote it, was initially considered as a play, and you still get a sense of that when you read Satan's soliloquy, which begins book four. But it was very much turned to be an epic in the end. I'm just going to look at the character list for a moment and describe some of the roles. There's Satan, who in the work is a female in her 40s. Um, let's see. God the Father is a male in the 60s. God the Son is male, about 33. Um, Adam is a male, about 20. Eve is female and 20. There is the Chorus of the Damned and the Chorus of the Chosen, which is composed of several angels. And I believe that it suggested that the Chorus of the Damned and the Chorus of the Chosen could be played by the same characters, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, and the setting, and I'll just read what is described for the setting. The action takes place in hell, in heaven, on earth, and everywhere in between. Set and costumes should be minimal and flexible to accommodate quick changes. Time is fluid. Biblical time, the 17th century, and now should be seamlessly intertwined, coming in and out of focus throughout the play. And I find that setting interesting because it's both kind of accurate to Milton's poem, except now you add the 21st century, which I think Milton would have mm -hmm. approved of having that change. But it's the idea of time moving between basically all of history is touched on in the play as in Milton's poem. And it's that fascinating sense that because all of time is touched, it's almost timeless in itself. Yeah, I think like you mentioned the the thing where like the course of the damned and the course of heaven could potentially be played by the same actors. I always think that's a, a wonderful storytelling device that also because it's theater, it also works as a budget device. Uh, <laughs> you you just have to pay less actors. And you also get to show off more versatile actors, but also it creates a really unique storytelling opportunity where you have these people inhabiting totally different characters. And in this case, they're totally opposite characters in a really cool way that that contrasts and you know conflicts each character against each other in a way that on a, on a whole other like meta level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's 21 characters without doubling. <laughs> so it's it's hard to get, you know, shows produced that are 21 characters uh, in total. So the doubling is very smart. Yeah, so in the in the beginning of the script, there's, um, there's kind of recommended gender and age castings for all of the angels. Um, although in her notes... Uh, Shields talks about that this was just the casting of the original production and you can really do whatever you want with these characters. Kind of placing that, that sort of emphasis on um, 
having these angelic beings that are kind of beyond our usual definitions of like how humans should interact based on gender. <laughs> yes, and I mean, interestingly, for Milton's often seen as this very kind of crusty puritanical figure because he was literally a Puritan. But one interesting thing about his angels is that they are, for a lack of a better word, transgender. They kind of transcend gender in that mm -hmm. sense. And that when they have sex, because his angels do have sex, it's kind of like this full mingling of the two. Mm. And... Of course, in Milton, you still get kind of those a gender hierarchy, which you'd expect for the from a seventeenth century Puritan. You get the idea that Adam was created for God and Eve for Adam and for God in Adam. But for Shields's play, you very much get a sense that these gender hierarchies are something that exist after the fall, but not mm -hmm. before it. And that before the fall, you get a very egalitarian relationship between Adam and Eve, which is very interesting to read about. Mm -hmm. I mean, S.H.I.E.L.D. says it really well in her own introduction to the book. And I'm going to quote from her. Um, so what one of the another big change she makes is that Satan is a woman in this play. Uh, and she says... I have not sought to reduce Milton's expansive story to a contemporary feminist parable. Rather, I have endeavored to situate the central conflicts of the play in a female body as a means of challenging our assumptions about the archetypes we've inherited. And she talks a little bit about archetypes in this introduction and kind of how when our classics is, are often so dominated by like a male gaze, we begin to see like the male perspective as standard and so these deviations aren't so much to like just disrupt the text for the sake of disrupting it but to add this sort of new interpretation of classic stories anyway paradise lost act one scene one i woke up darkness falling screams of pain and horror a single light illuminates satan Silence in the void. Satan's first lines are, I woke up on a lake of fire. Darkness visible was all I could see as I writhed with the pain of inexhaustible torment and breathed in the stench of burning sulfur, charred wing, sorry, charred flesh, singed hair, and melted wings. Huh. <sighs> These first lines are powerful. It's very true to Milton's text. And the problem of being a Milton, a student of Milton's poetry when reading this is always thinking, or often thinking, man, I wish that this preserved the energy of Milton's original blank mm -hmm. verse. But I, I realize that for a modern text, modern audiences don't always want the blank verse that I do. But just for a taste of what you get in Milton's arrival in hell. 
Him, the almighty power, hurled headlong, flaming from the ethereal sky, with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire, who durst defy the omnipotent to arms. Nine times the space that measures day and night, to mortal men he with his horrid crew lay vanquished, rolling in the fiery gulf, confounded though immortal. But his doom reserved him to more wrath, for now the thought, both of lost happiness and lasting pain torments him. Round he throws his baleful eyes that witnessed huge affliction and dismay, mixed with obdurate pride and steadfast hate. At once, as far as angels can, he views the dismal situation, waste and wild, a dungeon horrible on all sides round, as one great furnace flamed, yet from those flames no light but rather darkness visible, served only to discover sights of woe, regions of sorrow, doleful shades, where peace and rest can never dwell. Hope never comes that comes to all, but torture without end still urges, and fiery deluge fed with ever-burning sulfur unconsumed. Yeah, I've, I've always had a, let's say, interesting relationship with Milton and Paradise Lost, namely being not a huge fan. Um, <laughs> I know, I know it's shocking. Um, I feel like that's mostly due to like the specific circumstances around it uh, being like, uh, I think one of the last times I read Paradise, portions of Paradise Lost is an AP English class in high school doing a unit on epic poetry. And I found that epic poetry is not my jam whatsoever. Uh, and just kind of flailed through that unit on force of will and and decided that, you know what, someone else can handle the epic poetry. Um, so, yeah, it's like. I, I, I see it as beautiful and he's got some some good lines, but the like you like you said, like for me, at least in the, the modern audience, I was I ended up being pleasantly surprised with how much. I felt I was able to connect with and understand the text because of its contemporary um, contemporary sensibilities. Like I felt m more drawn in it actually like, you know, okay, maybe I will give Paradise Lost a chance. Like you mentioned earlier, like the, the love for the underlying text underneath definitely comes through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love how evocative, like, <sighs> stage directions, I think, really get overlooked in writing a play. And I think because oftentimes playwrights like to make them very functional or just non-existent. Because the idea is it doesn't matter what you say there because the director is going to do something different than what you want. And people are only ever going to hear the words of like the lines that you write. But I, I appreciate how simplistic her stage directions are, but how evocative they end up being, which makes the play itself really engaging to read. Mm -hmm. um, I think for a lot of playwrights, it's, it's easy to just ignore it because you go okay the play really breathes when it's alive which is true when it's when it's staged and that's true um but i think for readers beginning with darkness falling screams of pain and horror silence in the void like that 
It's great. How do you translate that to stage? I don't know. Are there going to be literal screens in the sound design? It doesn't matter, but it's interesting to your reader. I think, too, that this, this introduces one of my favorite, I don't know, theatrical writing gimmicks, which is um, unreliable narrator breaking the fourth wall, more or less. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, you know, from what I know, Paradise Lost, you do have, like, soliloquies from Satan here. But I, I enjoy the fact that Satan, at points, speaks directly to the audience. Um, and there's a, there's a soliloquy later on that I... I really enjoyed. Um, we'll get there eventually. <laughs> um, yeah, but that kind of the unreliable of like it really reels you in and feels like a dialogue between you know you feel like you get to know this character before the before your eyes finally cleared up and you're like oh actually that's Satan uh, evil probably. Mm -hmm. I I love the way you said that. Um, that's Satan evil probably. Because one of the things about reading Paradise Lost is that famously, many readers throughout history have found Milton's Satan more appealing than Milton's God, which is why you get a critic like Stanley Fish who says that Milton is purposefully showing us the things that are astray in our fallen nature by attracting us to evil, then rebuking us for being attracted to it and then kind of playing that game with us time and time again so that mm -hmm. by the time we get to even her temptation we can sympathize with her because we've gone through similar temptations throughout the work and it's almost an education to prepare us to face temptation in the world beyond yeah i think um I, I've got I've got two things I want to I want to jump in here with uh, yeah evil probably um, I, we'll talk about this probably more towards the end but yeah the characterization of Satan makes her to be very sympathetic and you mm. kind of like her and you could imagine a great actress just having so much fun with this part I think by the end however. Shields makes the really important distinction that, oh no, this is the bad guy. Like, we, we, we aren't necessarily given a sympathetic Lucifer, which I think can happen in some interpretations of the devil. Um, yeah, and it's like, uh, okay, my, my second thing, um, Neil Gaiman's The Sandman features Lucifer as a somewhat recurring character before he got his own spin-off comic book series. Um, and, you know, everything in hell, when, when, when Dream visits hell, it's horrible. It's a terrible place. You would never want to be there. Uh, you wouldn't want to be caught alive in hell. Um, it's just, it's, it's gross. It's disgusting. Its walls are made out of mangled bodies. It's so gross. All the demons are really disgusting. But Satan is beautiful. Hmm. He's he's depicted there as this like very tall, uh, blonde, flowing hair, these incredible wings, um, and I think yeah, it's kind of that inherent the, the the attraction of evil that Milton gets into that I think Shields taps into is 
that sinful nature can be really appealing at first. If that's the first thing you see is the charismatic, fun, empathetic Satan, it's so easy to get pulled into that. Yeah, and I, I definitely think like, Brett, as you mentioned, like I think the, the pervading fact or kind of new age way to look at it is of that sympathetic, um, yeah, sympathetic Satan that contrasts uh, what I assume Milton's um, an original authorial intent. Like that's that's the that's the almost baseline of like, oh, you want to do something on Paradise Lost, so you, you kind of do opposite Milton. But that's very much become the thing you think about when you think about adaptations of Paradise Lost. So yeah, that's that feeling of like letting Satan pull you along as the narrator as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think is really important as well because the narrator sets the entire tone and pulls the the audience through and it, it would be a bit different if it was a book but because it's a play and the narrator's on stage but we still get to make the kind of fly on the wall um judgments and sure. um kind of what you would call perceptions about what's happening on stage as well maybe it's also you know people feel less sacredly attached to satan and so are willing to have more fun with characterizing the devil mm. as opposed to when you want to depict God, there's this like need to be reverential. And so it's like how in a lot of, or at least this is my observation. I I've seen a whole lot of movies about Jesus from when I was like in, in Sunday school, a lot of, a lot of Jesus movies and he's pretty boring in most of them. Maybe it's because of that sort of, well, it's Jesus. We've got to take it very seriously. We've got to treat it with a lot of respect without making, you know, that character, you know, compelling as a individual, as a person. Mm. Um, and maybe just more the, it's okay to play with evil a little bit more because we don't have to care about protecting its image. Yeah. So Satan's in hell. Yes. Gets sent there by God. The The play begins kind of like right after the end of the war in heaven. The demons are having a real bad time. Well, the, 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 the referred to as the fallen angels. Um, they're writhing around in this great pit of fire. Uh, and things really suck. Mm-hmm. Yep, so you get this conversation between, uh, let's, I don't know. You get the conversation between Satan and Beelzebub. I always think of Harold Bloom, who sees Satan and Beelzebub in Milton's Paradise Lost as lovers and calls um, Beelzebub Beelze. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's su how supported by the text that is, but you get the one. You gotta let Bloom have his fan fiction. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But you get the beautiful, or I say beautiful, you get that powerful line in both Milton's and Shields's Paradise Lost better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Mm hmm. 
mm-hmm. which kind of shows the whole fallen angel's position. They will not repent. They will not seek to make amends with God. They would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven to be lords of themselves in hell is better to be servants or sons in heaven. Mm-hmm. Of course, they wouldn't say servants or sons. They'd say slaves, but yeah. Yeah. So the fallen angels make a palace for themselves called Pandemonium, which I mean, means all of the devils. It is. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I believe that was Milton's coining. Okay. Yep. Um, apparently, hell is full of riches, full of gold and other things. So it's this beautiful, gorgeous palace erected in this awful, awful fit, pit of burning fire. And then, of course, in Milton, you get the sea, the kind of line where there is much greater richness in hell than on earth, and that it was the devils themselves who taught humans to greedily mine for such treasures and to value it in the avaricious way they do, that we do. Now, do do you think that the like that idea of like there being treasures in hell, like gold and stuff? Do you think that comes from like the concept of hell being literally under the earth? Um, part partly yes, because I think it would go partly back to Pluto, who in Greek was Hades, the god mm-hmm. of the dead, but who in classical or in Roman mythology became more the god of the underworld but also all of the things under the earth including things like gold so i think that there's that side of it but i do think that milton would want mainly to think about just the greed that sure work with because there's also gold in heaven there you have this description that mammon is uh, obsessed with heaven's like sidewalk basically which is made with gold and so he was the least erected spirit that fell because in heaven he was always looking at heaven's golden golden roads rather than up towards god Mm. and speaking of mammon he's one of the devils in this conversation here between belial moloch and mammon as well as he is um did i have a comment i wanted to make about mammon uh, Mammon is interesting because in this version, he's kind of fused with, I want to say Ashtaroth. Uh, yes. I don't know how I, you pronounce it, but yeah, that one. Yes. Yeah. Maybe for a bit more context, they're discussing what they should do now that they're in hell. I believe Moloch's the angry one who's like, hey, we should attack God again. And because this is awful and I'd rather just die fighting than right. do anything else. Um, Belial or Belial, I believe, is the one who's trying, who wants to kind of sit quietly and just get used to hell, if I remember correctly. 
Um, or is that Moloch? Or was that? Yeah, no, it's Belial because Belial's got this line where where Moloch is is ready to fight. Yes, uh, and asks, could it really be worse than this? And Belial's like, yeah, it could be so much worse. So let's just chill. Yes. Um. Just sorry on the literal like writing of the text. Uh, Shields employs like a lot of blank verse throughout the play, um, which gives it a really great sense of pacing. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm reading this, I can imagine how it's performed without her needing to go beat here, long beat here, long pause here. Because like towards the end of Belial's speech, the lines, yes, yes, Moloch, it could be much worse, are all different lines of the poetry or of the verse. So it gives you a sense of, oh, these are distinct. Yes, yes, Moloch, it could be much worse. Yeah, this this play definitely employs really well what I call what I call like theater speak or I like to call like theater speak of like when when you go to a play and there's something especially dramatic going on all those beats and those pauses feel not necessarily unnatural but definitely pointed and the way they're speaking is much more eloquent than like yeah. a normal conversation because obviously it's it's theater it's a play it's meant to be just a little bit unreal so if, if someone was talking to you like that you'd be like dude what's up with like why are you talking like that but in a play we're like this is so amazing great job you know yeah you know, here have a tony <laughs> and but even beyond that it's conversations between gods and angels and fallen angels mm-hmm. so it's very appropriate if they use this elevated language and even like how um Astroth and Mammon, because they're they're fused together, continue each other's like verses. Um, like on, on 17 here, um, Astroth says, even if God did, and then Mammon eventually, and then Astroth says, accept us back. And then they kind of just they're finishing each other's sentences. But then there are other moments where, and this is, again, jumping kind of further into the play, uh, there's a conversation between some of the angels right before they perform their uh, Midsummer Night's Dream-esque play, where they're all, uh, uh, like, angels like Raphael and a few of the others speak to each other. Okay, here we go. Uh, This is Act 4, Scene, Act 4, Scene 3? Act 3, Scene 3. Um, Zephon and Thuriel are having a conversation and then it's all in prose not in verse anymore so she's doing it very intentionally when she's switching between the two mm-hmm. and so at the end of the kind of council of devils they make this plan that they hear that somewhere between heaven and hell God has created a new world with these weird little creatures called humans, which are kind of like angels, but also kind of not. But God loves these silly little things. And what are what can they do to get back at God? Hurt the things he loves. So basically, they make the plan that Satan can go to Earth and get the humans to disobey God, and then that could be their revenge. Yeah, it's this sort of it it 
changes Adam and Eve's fall. Spoilers for the end of the play. They they sin and they leave the garden. Wait, um, what? Sorry. Gosh. Wait, I thought I was in Eden right now. <laughs> you gave me time to read the first three chapters of Genesis, and I haven't done it yet. <laughs> uh but it 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 turns it from more than just humans rebelling against God by eating the fruits to this sort of one part in a very grand scheme of divine revenge where Satan isn't just tempting humans because that's what he does. Is it's I'm personally mad at God. Um and so I'm gonna do this just to get back at him. Is that also his motivation uh, in the original Paradise Lost? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so, to that end, he approaches Earth, but before he does that, he has to get out of Hell. And what does he find at the gates of Hell? Death. Death and sin. So, if before you get there, there's just some real funny moments in this play, uh, and one of them is when Death is talking about uh, a scorpion whip, and then uh, so so Satan comes up to the gates of hell, and Death is like, uh, oh yeah, you ever seen one of these? Scorpion whip. Uh, you got your stainless steel handle, you got your refined leather whips, you got your scorpion sting tips, one lick of this bad boy and your muscles convulse, your diaphragm seizes, your heart starts beating a million miles a second, then you die. <laughs> It, it is a very fun play mm. like as much as it's grandiose and about uh you know why does evil happen and the the gr the great revenge of satan against god it's really funny yeah and then you get death or not death and then you get sin who's like how many times i gotta tell you to put that thing down Mama. Oh, mama yeah it's it <laughs> and then there's this weird like incest plot point oh yep and that's from milton okay because uh, satan here is sorry sin is described here as having emerged from satan's head the moment he thought i'm gonna fight god yes and then they also had a very, they also have uh, had a very long love affair and produced death. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, uh, and it's interesting because I guess here it's kind of that it's a lesbian affair. So that's interesting. In the original Paradise, Satan was a guy. Right. But either way, they produced this child who is death. And then, um, and then Satan fills sin and death in on her plan. Hey, I'm going to this new place that God's creating somewhere in chaos. And uh, if you let me through, we're going to have so much fun. Mm -hmm. But it's also just kind of because he wants to get past them because she has the key to hell. Right. Because... I, I mean, my sense of reading this is that Satan has doesn't really have an idea of who she is. Like, she, he kind of, or I, I say he, it, Satan's a girl in this. She has a sense of who Sin is, but I think 
the way that they're describing the love affair, it's mostly that she's trying to get on Sin's good side, even though it's kind of like, I don't really know you, but I want to kind of romance you up so that you give me what I want. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know how much of this is also from the poem, but Sin used to be beautiful. Um, and it it sounds like through Satan's being a being being a being bad, um, sin has like turned into something rather hideous. It's like he do, she doesn't recognize sin when she first sees her, mm -hmm. um, even though it's pretty clear that they have a long history together. So Satan gets through the gates of hell. Um, there's this wonderful chorus of the damned which plays on the Lord's Prayer. And in Act 2, we're in heaven, it's the heavenly council. The chorus of the chosen are singing about how great it is that they chose to be on the winning side of the war in heaven. Um, the it God is legally the distinct from the television series The Chosen. Yes. God the Father and God the Son are kind of talking about how great the humans are that they but how they have their little menial tasks to give them purpose and whatnot. Mm -hmm. God the Father's a bit worried that the sons or that Satan's on the way to earth and that Satan's going to tempt them and basically the father's like, hey, we can't stop them from stop Satan from tempting right. because of the inviolability of free will and the love that that allows. And so he's like, hey, they're going to be tempted. They're going to fall. We should, we can't really stop this. They're going to need to be punished. At which point the son says, wait, you're planning to damn mankind because of one small transgression? Father, it is not a small transgression. Son, they're going to eat a piece of fruit. Father, fruit I told them not to eat. <laughs> I, I think that the depiction of, of, of God and Jesus, although Jesus never named Jesus here, he's just God the Son, um, is quite interesting because it's like they don't agree on everything and it's not like the son has a perfect understanding of what the father is doing at any given moment. So Shields, I, I, again, I don't know how much this parallels what's happening in Milton's original, but Shields is willing to give her depiction of God a little bit more of like a distinctive character. And like, there's conflict. Yeah, Milton was an Aryan, but that doesn't really get through in Paradise Lost. He does portray God the Son as being perfectly in attunement with and perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. Mm. I think it's it's narrative. I mean, listen, I feel like I need to make this disclaimer. Paradise Lost, whether by Milton or by Shields, is not scripture. And so there's going to be things people go, well, that's not theologically accurate. It's a poem. It's a play. Whatever. Milton would think, disagree with you. Well, <laughs> uh, I think giving 
the son a bit more of a, a slightly I don't know about this one uh, dad kind of an attitude also helps define like like the 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 positions of the different characters in terms of what they believe and answer a lot of the audience's questions for us because if if the son doesn't ask you're gonna damn them because they eat a piece of fruit the audience is gonna go wait really god's gonna damn them because they ate a piece of fruit Mm -hmm. yeah, I I I was also gonna say or think about saying <laughs> something similar to that, where I think it's this very because it's been brought so modern day and is potentially so abstracted from what people think of probably as more kind of sacred aspects. It it allows this freedom to actually question the story and, like you said, get a little bit of that character conflict in there to kind of set the context and also keep keep working through that thread that kind of starts with satan as she narrates the yeah. play and starts to sow the seeds of doubt before we see the full reveal and the um we said third act not in like the third act but in like a general as a three-act story which this is not so that's never mind <laughs> this is a five-act story arc david get it together some people think that movies actually have a five-act structure, even though that's not what's commonly taught in screenwriting classes. People go, well, actually, the exposition should be one, and then the rising action should be another, and then the climax should be a third, and then the falling action should be the fourth, and then the conclusion should be the fifth. And I go, okay, I think you're just overcomplicating the Avengers. Anyway. Um, it is interesting that God of the Spirit is absent from this. Mm -hmm. So it's not a true, it's it's not like a, a triune image of God. It's like God the Father and God the Son. And they're very distinct. Mm -hmm. I'm, I would maybe, sorry, Brett, did you want to comment on that? Or? Oh, oh, no, you can say. I, I would maybe say that that is from, my guess at least would be that that is less of a a i don't know like a theological or a story choice and more of kind of like we mentioned there's already like 20 characters i, the story. I fully agree yeah and so to like add to add a third part of god to this would further complicate in the story in a way that is probably not super necessary yeah especially because it could see as you know from a scripting standpoint detracting from the the essential conflict which is God created the Son, or God the Father created God the Son, and and Satan really didn't like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, it, you can say in many Christian works of art, the Holy Spirit does kind of get a bit neglected. It's not just Milton and Shields. Who's afraid of the Holy Spirit? To reference another famous play. Yes. And I, I mean, it would be hard to portray the Holy Spirit in a play. It's not like you can yeah. just put the Holy Ghost up on a stage like you would one <laughs> sure. like the Ghost of Christmas present, so to say. Shout out to the Muppets. Mm -hmm. How about the Muppet version of Paradise Lost? <laughs> I want that. <laughs> where, where Satan is the only human character, the rest of them are all Muppets. Anyway, um, father, son, they argue, they talk. Okay, 
Um, they're going to eat a piece of fruit. God knows it's going to happen. Uh, Satan's trying to find Earth. Uh, <laughs> she hoodwinks a foolish lesser angel named Uriel um, and sneaks into this newly formed world. Mm-hmm. And then she has a great speech great about speech. the nature of God's love. And first, I'm going to read the kernel that's based off of a par- in Paradise Lost, and then I'll read her speech. And that'll probably be the last time I feel the need to compare two passages so closely, but I, I think it's worth it. Mm. So, in Paradise, so in Milton's poem, you get Satan saying, Ah, wherefore, you deserve no such return from me, whom he created what I was, and that bright eminence, and with his good upbraided none, nor was his service hard. What could be less than to afford him praise, the easiest recompense, and pay him thanks? How do, yet all his good proved ill in me, and wrought but malice, Lifted up so high, I stained subjection, and thought one step higher would set me highest, and in a moment quit the debt immense of endless gratitude, so burdensome, still paying, still to owe, forgetful what from him I still received, and understood not that a grateful mind by owing owes not, but still pays at once, indebted and discharged. What burden then? So then, based off of that part of Paradise Lost, you get shields riding with through Satan's mouth. You women out there will understand what I mean when I ask you to imagine going out for dinner with a very nice gentleman. You have a lovely meal, and at the end, he reaches for his wallet. You protest, of course, but eventually permit him to pay, because it's been a lovely evening, and you know, despite the evolution of gender roles, a man feels happier when he's able to foot the bill. The next week, you go for another lovely meal. And once again, he insists on paying. Won't take no for an answer. But on the third date, it's your turn to insist. And he reluctantly agrees. At the end of the evening, however, when you return from the washroom, you discover that, yes, he's done it again. He's got a mischievous grin on his face. And while you don't begrudge him his obvious joy, you feel a growing sense of dread. An invisible debt is rising. A debt you know you can never repay. A debt which imprisons you in a state of eternal gratitude. That is how it feels to be left by God. So now you can understand why, when I sat on the sun contemplating atonement and leaving you humans to your bliss, I knew I could never return to God's suffocating love. And I need to say that like of all of my readings of adaptations of classic literary works that's probably my favorite bit in any of them Mm -hmm. just because i feel like that's a perfect transmutation of what milton satan was saying and putting it into something very relevant to a modern context but i think the best two lines are the very very end where where shields directly quotes milton and this is how Satan finishes. So instead, I made this vow. Henceforth, evil, be thou my good. Hmm. It's a great monologue. Yeah. I, I am dying to see this thing performed. Uh, yeah. 
Yes. And it's interesting because this the speech that this is based off of in Paradise Lost is one of the earliest parts of Paradise Lost, which was written. And it was written back when Milton was still intending to write Paradise Lost as a tragedy. Mm-hmm. So there's almost a Shakespearean quality to something like Satan's lines in Paradise Lost. So farewell hope, and with hope farewell fear. Farewell remorse, all good to me is lost. Evil be thou my good, by thee at least. Divided empire with heaven's king I hold. By thee and more per- than half perhaps will reign. As man ere long in this new world shall know. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So then we get into the garden. At last we have reached the paradise which will be lost. We meet Adam and Eve. They eat fruit. They hold they, hands. They're having a they're having a good old time. They they kind of share the first time they met through this. They don't speak. It's it's very interesting. They don't speak in first person until the fall. When they speak about themselves, they use he and she pronouns. And so when like they they recount this story, and also it's weird. It's not capitalized any of it or really all that. Um, organized in, in with its with its grammatical structure uh, a lot of lowercase a lot of just kind of empty lines um, it's this sort of like purity in a sense it's just words and language and thought built rules um, I mean there are exceptions there are there are periods and commas that creep in there every once in a while but they're not common mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And it makes sense if it to have that flip there because it's literally a change into a new way of being in the world. These are humans first coming into consciousness who haven't. Yeah. And then I, I think Satan kind of mentions this too because Satan ends up the scene uh, stepping in. She speaks to the audience again, uh, and she says they're adorable, like little toy angels. Delicate, fragile, naive, and you you have this sense from these sort of this 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 little bit of text is like they're very simple creatures right now, and they speak in much more complex thoughts once they have this sort of knowledge of good and evil put upon them. I, I mean, Satan says their expressions of innocence do make them look well rather stupid. And then addressing us. No offense, you've evolved since then. Somewhat. And at the very, very end of the scene, she's like, do you see how easy God made it for me? Like lambs. Okay, so then for Act 3, Scene 1, you have the angels in heaven preparing the defense. They have warning that Satan's coming um, let's see. One of my favorite lines. This the scene is very comical. Okay. Uh, it's, it's this whole training montage. One of my favorite lines is Ithuriel, one of the one of the angels, is training to fight with a sword, and they say, "Ha ha ha! I am the embodiment of evil." Ha ha ha! And then Michael says, uh, "Text won't be necessary." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but it's funny because you can see that both Milton and Shields create a more complex picture of Satan than Ethereal does when pretending to be Satan. Totally. Uh, yeah, so Uriel shows up and is like, hey guys, I saw Satan. <clears throat> and now they are ready to fight, but first we're going to stage a play. <laughs> Which in times of war and times of crisis, I fully agree that is the most rational approach. Um, so they're they're scheming now about creating a play. Yeah, they have God the Father's permission. You can tell that God the Father doesn't really want, or actually, sorry, God the Son doesn't really want them. To, God the Son doesn't really care about the play. He's just like, you know what? Do what you need to do to warn them not to eat from the tree of knowledge. Make sure they know that. We don't want them to say they weren't fairly warned. But then Raphael's just like, yeah, I get to do my play. Ha <laughs> uh, Yes. Uh, one of my, another favorite line is Raphael says, um, some of the angels and I have been rehearsing in anticipation of one day being asked to share the story of the war in heaven with the humans. I've made certain that it is not too frightening. <laughs> Good. Which is very much uh, a Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, where, 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 where Quint is all like, we don't want to make the lion too scary, because otherwise we're going to frighten the ladies, and then they're going to kill us all. Yes. Um, we get back to Adam and Eve. They're eating food. And there's kind of this idea that, I mean, they're, well, they're, they're eating lamb chops and sautéed Swiss chard, which I think is, is a great choice for uh, an early meal in the Garden of Eden. But it's this, this implication that they're not actually cooking it. It just kind of shows up. <laughs> and even with how things are described later, it doesn't actually sound like any lambs die in the creation of that meal. Like it's like a like an, a proto beyond meat lamb chop. A, a, a page or two later, um, they're talking about wow, isn't it so great that that meal is prepared? And then Adam is like, they might need to find a warm lamb chop tree and pick the warm lamb chop themselves. Uh, <laughs> right, they are fortunate and fortunate too that they get to rest. <laughs> but I I think part of the irony here is that. Adam and Eve don't yet realize that a lamb does need to die for their food. Right. Which I think is implied. It's just they don't have this real concept of death yet. So that, that's an interesting implication. Like, humans are being shielded from the reality, almost like they're being shielded from the reality of the world. Because towards the end, they see all these you know, terrible things. Oh, the, these, what, the wolves are hunting down some sheep or something. Um, was that always happening? Or could they just not see it or not have the understanding that that was reality? Yeah, I, I, I don't know, but it's interesting. Oh, yeah, it's more of a something to think about. Yes. For the viewers at home. Mm-hmm. 
But it's also interesting because you remember one of Sajin's recent lines was like lambs, ellipsy. Mm -hmm. And then you finish it in your mind for the slaughter. And then they're eating lamb. Yeah. Wow. They are the lambs, but they're also eating the lambs. Symbolism. And then the thought's the Lamb of God. Oh, man. It's almost as if this imagery has been being developed for millennia. Whoa. Whoa. Then you start thinking about Jonathan Demi and Silence of the Lambs. So, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Um, they hear northern mockingbirds, brown thrashers, loons. Um, it's it's just them. They're having it's it's more kind of reiterating the simplicity of their own world. They're again speaking in their in their no capitalization. Rupee Core inspired uh, blank verse. <laughs> it's way better than Rupee Core. That's... <laughs> I I made that comment just so people at home would go, okay, Seth, don't don't insult this play like that. <laughs> Aaron Shields is, yeah, okay. <laughs> it has a narrative purpose in this play. Yes. So in the next scene, we get the angels getting ready for their play. Um, let's see. Well, first, oh yeah, um, there's two of the two of the angels, Ethereal and Zephon, have a very extended conversation about what is Satan and what is suffering, because Ethereal was created after the war in heaven, um, and then Satan shows up, and Gabriel's there, and. Um, Gabriel grabs Satan and marches her off. Um, yeah. And then we get back to Adam and Eve. Uh, yeah. Yes. So then we get back to Adam and Eve. They're sleeping. And Eve wakes with a start. She had a nightmare that... Um, let's see. But let's see. So Satan kind of slept into her mind and gave a kind of prelude of temptation, mm -hmm. kind of noting how beautiful the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was and how it's very tempting. It's a, it says to taste, juice, knowledge fit for the gods. And this troubles Eve a lot but then Adam consoles her saying it's alright it's only a dream it's not something that happens in reality they have a kind of discussion about the nature of reason and fantasy and he's like you didn't actually do anything you're okay it's not your fault yeah it's a really interesting depiction of that dream because it's more than Eve just narrating it because we see Satan on stage and she's kind of reenacting what happened um, I don't think we... Uh, Satan is heard but not seen. Satan speaks her part as Eve re relives the dream. Regardless, it's it's more interesting than her just going, I had this dream. Cause it's, it's, yes. It's yeah. um, and then Satan's also speaking with capitalization and punctuation where Eve is just, again, all lowercase. Mm -hmm. um, there's a conversation about fantasy and reality. 
Eve cries for the first time and they're all very concerned. Uh, yeah, Satan's there in the garden, captured by Raphael and Gabriel, with a promise that she'll return and get revenge on the Scooby gang. Uh, and then we go into Act 4. Yes. But of course, when Satan says that, she quotes God, I believe, who said, no prison can contain revenge. Yeah, Satan says, ah, oh, don't worry, as a wise man once said, no prison can contain revenge. Blackout on stage. And that is the end of the first half. And then you have intermission. I like uh, the top of Act 4, um, how we're actually kind of made a couple different sections here in Act 4, Scene 1. Shields is giving this, this impression of what this very rinky-dink play looks like. Perhaps there is a proscenium with velvet curtains. Perhaps there is a painted backdrop. Perhaps there is an elevated stage. Um, the text is clunky. The set and costumes are DIY. The performance is very greatly, but there's an incredible amount of heart. Mm -hmm. You can tell that Raphael really cares. Raphael's really trying, guys. Yeah. It's his moment in the limelight. He has a delicious meal with Adam and Eve, which is actually one of the fun changes from... Yeah. The initial text, which I believe Shields notes in her preface, is that in the original text, because of Milton's whole gender hierarchy thing, Adam talks with the angel while Eve sleeps or does her own thing. But in this version, they get to talk with the angel together, which is nice. Or I think in the way Shields phrases it is that she's cooking for them. I don't know if that's if that's exactly the reasoning in the in the text. Oh, that's that what she said. Okay. But either way, they're both together now to enjoy the um, presentation of the angels. Uh, Eve prepares dinner while the guys have a serious debate about the war in heaven. But instead of a serious debate, we get to pick. We get uh, this wonderful play. Um, I love how Raphael is trying to explain the themes of the play, but they've never experienced this before. So they're like, what are, what are characters? Uh, what is performance? What is envy? What is pride? And by the end, he's like, okay, just, just watch it. Just see what you think. And then we have the, the humorous sort of little fun play throughout. But then... Um, it goes on for a while. The one thing I want to highlight is that uh was it zef zephon is playing satan right mm -hmm. yep. yes and then zephon is replaced by the real satan who assumes the role of zephon playing satan so it's satan in the satan mask yes who then stabs uh, ethereal for real <laughs> and my <laughs> uh raphael Obviously, he's trying to like wrap things up, and it's like, and the battle was hard fought, but then we won. Don't worry. And Adam's like, it looks like Satan won. Uh, and Raphael's like, uh, yes, she thought so, but uh, guess what? She didn't. And Eve's like, is that angel okay? It looks like you got stabbed for real. Um, yeah. So so now Satan's running loose in the garden. Hmm. Sorry, also, and then Raphael follows it up with, 
No angels were harmed in the making of this play, all part of the magic of theater. (laughs) (laughs) It gets a little meta in there, especially with, like, ordering the lights to be dimmed and then your stage manager having to go and dim the lights. Mm -hmm. Nobody but Satan, I think, unless I'm totally misremembering, breaks the fourth wall fully, but they make it razor thin in this play. Yep, and so Adam and Eve have a sense of that they shouldn't eat from the tree of knowledge. Raphael makes that very clear after his play failed to make that clear, which was the reason for the play, but that's okay. And then you have this kind of depiction of Adam and Eve having unfallen intercourse. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is gentle, pure, loving, and Raphael is somewhat perplexed by the couple's outward display of affection, so he shields them from sight of the other angels to give them a bit of privacy. <laughs> and so that's the end of that scene. Um, yeah. And then we get into the the father and the son come back on. And basically, it, well, it's interesting idea that Jesus is the one who came up with the concept for the incarnation and his eventual crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if the if depending on how you perform the play and how the text is interpreted, maybe it's because there's this disagreement with the father over you should not have done that. Uh, now I'm going to go and do this. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because I. It's interesting because in Paradise Lost, it's very much God the Father being like one of heaven's numbers must stand in place for humanity to redeem them from their sin. And then it's the Son who stands forth, being like, I will do this great task and take it upon myself. And the Father is like, Ah, yes, my perfect Son who is always of one will with me. But in here, there is a bit of tension. The father doesn't want to sacrifice his son. He's the only perfect being in the world. He says, they'll ridicule you, torture you, they'll crucify you. To which the son says, I know. And the father says, you don't know. You have no idea how much you will suffer. And it's this sense that the son isn't omniscient in this. He doesn't know everything. But the son feels such compassion for the people that he simply cannot let them fall away to damnation. So he kind of outlines the way that the atonement works, to which the father says, you are my only peace. I cannot let you go. And the son says, you do not have a choice. Free will. And so it kind of twists the father's emphasis on free will and the role that Free will, free will right. plays in humans and their disobedience. And now the son uses that to justify the way of the mechanism for humanity's redemption for their disobedience. Yeah, I think, I mean, the way that the son isn't here a lot, but the way that he's depicted, he's very much like this, like, and in, in he's he's he, it's almost like he's like an incarnate Christ before 
an incarnation because he's depicted, you know, at 33, which is, you know, the age when Jesus died. Um, there's, you know, some people like to question how much did Jesus as a human, like how much did that limit his, you know, ability to know the future, but then you will know he's fully God as well as being fully human. But then they go, yeah, but it's more interesting if he doesn't actually know everything. Um, but yeah, it's kind of this, he's making a decision for himself that this is going to happen one day. And then you have scene three, um, Ethereal and Zephon are in the garden talking about how they want to catch Satan. I think we can kind of skip over it. Yeah, I have no thoughts on that conversation. <laughs> okay, perfect. Let's split up scene four. Adam and Eve are together in the garden, and Eve has the idea that she wants to split up, not their relationship, but just work in different parts of Eden for a couple hours. You know, they can be work more effectively. That way they can show their independence. Adam's like, you know, we're better together. I'd rather spend the time with you. That would be the best way to go about things, but he doesn't press it that far. And ultimately, they split up. Yes, I. Um, yeah, well, Eve is like they, speaking for both of them in the third person, never seem to get anything done. Um, <laughs> it's this idea that they spend so much time together; they're just distracting each other from from being productive. But that's bad because Satan shows up again. Mm -hmm. Scene five, doesn't beauty make you sick? Another great monologue here from Satan uh, to end act four. This is probably my favorite part of the play. I think the one that finally hooked me into the end. So I read this in fits and spurts over like a couple weeks reading like a couple scenes at a time and then on the very like last day when i finished this i got to the scene and then i just finished the rest of the play at this point because yeah. it just oh i love this soliloquy so much because it like it fully i think it, it pretty much almost destroys the fourth wall and then also has this very like modern take that suddenly twists satan from being like semi-sympathetic to oh yeah hmm probably evil yeah she she is the bad guy yeah uh and it's it's shields is very much describing a canadian eden which i think it's an observation that um the what's his face who wrote the introduction makes as well Stephen? but like she even pulls the yeah uh she even says uh i've been wandering this perversely expansive land of yours from sea to shining sea Sorry, from sea to sea to shining sea, uh, echoing Canada's, was it motto on the coat of arms? Is that what it is? Is Canada's national motto. Uh, from, sea to, from sea to sea. Ah, okay. And so, yes, it's on the coat of arms. Okay. But adding that third sea asserts Canadian dominance over the Arctic Ocean. <laughs> um, 
yeah and just like like the images of of the glaciers and the pipelines and um you know how is this going let's destroy the land for the sake of the investment for portfolio and almost makes the viewer or the reader complicit in the fall of creation yeah the the third paragraph in this in this soliloquy um where Satan's just finished talking about, oh, I want to, uh, I see glorious waterfalls and all I could think about was where to put the casino. Then she directly addresses the audience and says, come on, you know what I mean. Don't sit there looking indignant. I know you're burning it, chopping it, draining it, building it up, tearing it down, selling it to the highest bidder. Don't feel guilty about it. Don't feel like you have to deny it or pretend you aren't a part of it or justify the makeup of your investment portfolio. You've had no other choice but to play by the rules of the game. Which then leads us straight into Act 5, The Fall. Mm -hmm. Eve and Satan. Satan's disguised as a serpent now. Um, I, I love how you know the, the serpent is like, you should eat the fruit, but Eve's really hung up on the part that the serpent can talk. Mm -hmm. Which is fair. <laughs> She's like... Uh, she says, human language in animal form. And Satan says, such rapid fire, wow, such rapid fire powers of deduction. <laughs> or um, uh, Eve says, please tell Eve how the serpent is different. One day the serpent came upon a tree in the, please tell Eve how the serpent is not the same as other serpents. One day the serpent came, Eve has seen serpents before. One day the, but never has seen a serpent who can speak. There was this tree, and never one so friendly. Please, gentle creature, tell me how the serpent came to speak. <laughs> Beat, I came across, she would very much like to know. <laughs> and yet, she, she's promised this, this fruit. Um, with this lie. Like, Eve doesn't eat of the of the fruit maliciously. Um, it's the the serpent is you know well look what happened to me I ate it and I a snake can talk. Now if you eat it, imagine how much more powerful you're going to become. Which again plays into the revenge narrative. It's not that humans necessarily chose this, although they were told not to eat from that tree. It's this, I got them in the end. Mm -hmm. But there is the sense that he says that it would make her into a goddess, which would be a thing mm. that creatures would worship. And that this is a thing that she deserves and yeah. ought to be. So then there is that niggling sense of pride within it. And then when Eve brings up death, as being the punishment for eating of the tree. She admits that she doesn't know how it works. And the serpent says that he's unfamiliar with the term, but perhaps consuming this fruit might bring about the death of her former self. Which is... True! <laughs> mm -hmm. It's also ironic, given that death is his kid. Ah, uh, yes. And grandkid at the same time. Uh... Uh, 
Yeah, and then she devours the fruit, and Eve's first lines are a word she's never said before. I, 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 I love you, fruit. And now she's speaking with capitalization and periods. Um, I, ne uh, I never thought before. Uh, okay, I'm expanding. I'm thinking of things I never thought before. Like maybe the earth isn't round. Maybe it's flat instead. Maybe the sun and the heavenly orbs all rotate around the earth. God will surely be proud of me for evolving in this way. <laughs> it's not the I best have... knowledge that <laughs> knowledge gives. I have liberated myself from the bonds of ignorance. I think that's a great quote or way to phrase it as well. Um, because it shows, um, I don't know how to describe it, like the downside to the fact that some people have independent thoughts. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah it, it, it shows that, um, you know, even though Eve has these these faculties of independent thought now, and she's having this existence that is maybe better, it doesn't mean that she's always right. Or that sure. the that she has the same sort of context. I don't know. You know, never mind. I'm I'm abandoning that. Well, I mean, I think there's something to that. It's like the she's not even like it's 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 this the pros and cons of the knowledge of good and evil. It's it's not necessarily that the fruit was the problem or even all the side effects of the problem because I don't know how much I would want to exist in Shield's version of Adam and Eve because they're quite simplistic and but now it's it's gaining awareness yeah which is what the serpent promises like awareness you'll be aware of yourself of the world able to make judgments and decisions. But then where do those, you know, decisions lead you if, if they lead you into uh, flat earth conspiracy YouTube? Like, wake the, up, the, people. yeah, the problem of free will. If you give someone a choice, is that a good thing? Um, Eve goes to Adam. Uh, Eve is speaking in full sentences. Adam is not. He's still speaking all lowercase. Um, and he's he's very upset because he's recognized what she's done. Um, and she she's not even like being malicious. She's like, I've had this wonderful thing and I'm full of all these thoughts that I've never thought possible before. Uh, my spirit is bigger. My heart is fuller. I'm turning into a god. Um, and he eats the fruits. What? Not even necessarily because he, he's tricked, but because out of the sense of love for her, because Adam can't be separated from Eve. Uh, I might want to step back a step. Okay. They oh. go to Eve talking to herself. She begins to ask, what about Adam? Should I tell him? What do I do? And then she says, what if God has seen what I've done and he doesn't like it and I die, then I won't exist anymore. So now she knows that death, what death is, it's this kind of state of not existing. And then she says, and Adam will have be given another Eve, and they will live together happily. 
no, I couldn't bear it. He, she doesn't want him to have a future happiness without her. And then she says, and neither could he. I know Adam, and I couldn't bring myself to make him suffer in that way, which really has the sense of her justifying what she wants to herself. And this parallels fairly closely, I would say, with what happens in Paradise Lost. And when C.S. Lewis reads that portion of Paradise Lost, he says that Eve is basically making the determination to murder Adam at that point because she sees that death awaits them mm. and, he, and she chooses for not only herself to die, but for Adam to die as well. That might be putting it a bit too harshly, and yet I think that that's definitely something to be cognizant of when reading this portion. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's I. I don't know if, if I would use the word she's murdered him because I don't think Eve is fully sure if if she's going to die or if God doesn't like it. But regardless of what it is, she can't experience either death or this new life without Adam. Also because she doesn't want to see Adam with anyone else. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, they have a pretty... Uh, long conversation where she's like, no, it's it's not bad, it's good, it's not poison, I'm a new person. Um, and then Adam says, fine, he'll do it, speaking about himself, because it's her that's asking him to do it. Mm -hmm. And like Eve, Adam's first lines are, I, I, I. And then he gobbles hungrily. <gasps> he loves the fruit, he loves the tree, he loves Eve. He wants to run faster, he wants to climb higher, he wants to dig deeper, presumably for those pipelines. He wants to build statues of himself, he wants to build monuments to himself. He wants to build a tall, tall tower that looks exactly like his. And then he stops that line, thank goodness. <laughs> And then they talk about his loins and her desire. And then they have unfallen intercourse, which is less pure than the... And now we move to sin and death's ascension. Basically, they kind of intuit that the fall happened, and now they're building a bridge from hell to earth. Um. I, I like how death is really hungry. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great characterization move. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, it's, it's this, this full, sorry, this full, this pull that, that sin's feeling, and then death's starting to go, and then, then death starts to smell it in the air. He's like, there's food. Yep, and I believe that's taken from Milton's Paradise Lost. Mm -hmm. You get the idea that death, or that sin is just ravenous. And so, they're on their way to Earth now. Death says, uh, can I bring my weapons? And sin says, every single one. Meanwhile... Chilling, chilling. 
Oh, yes. Anyway, moving so, on. Moving to the next scene, the aftermath in heaven. God the Father gives this very political speech of just, we have just witnessed an attack of unprecedented proportion. <laughs> it is a horror. You can imagine many politicians saying this. He feels like the president addressing the nation wow. after some sort of like, after like 9-11 or something. It is an yeah. unprecedented attack against the, it's a, the United States of America. Or guys here, the kingdom of heaven. Yep. The angels blame one another, but God the Father says not to. They did their best. And he says, in the face of this deceit and violence, we must respond with love. I will send my son to live among their descendants, to live for them, to suffer for them, to die for them, so that whomsoever believes in him shall not die but have eternal life. To which the son says, thank you, Father. And then God sends his people on the way to meet with Adam and Eve to expel them from the garden and to get ready for fallen human history, basically. Yeah, uh, the father ends, or Michael says, uh, yes, sir. What about Satan? And God ends with another banger line, uh, leave Satan to me. Mm-hmm. Um, we're back with Adam and Eve. They're speaking in full sentences this time, and things don't feel good. The grass is too sharp. Uh, the trees are all separate. The eagles are attacking robins. Wolves are chasing after deers. Um and then they can also see the angels in the garden that are like that have given it its its divine. They're the ones who killed the lamb to give them food. They're always there. They're so, like now made aware of reality, and that they're both naked. Mm-hmm. Okay, I looked this up because I was really curious how they got around this in like stage productions. They just wear skin-colored bodysuits. Oh, okay. And then you've got uh, you've got God the Father come, or sorry, God the Son coming down, talking to them, and he yeah. lets them um, confess. And then um, I think one thing to particularly highlight uh, when he's meeting out the punishments, uh, it's not the normal kind of childbirth will be pain and whatever he goes really into the details mm-hmm. of um i'd say it's probably the most like explicit kind of um feminist rendering uh so it says from now on you will defer to your husband in everything you do everything you've asked you'll be excluded from making decisions and engaging in meaningful work your ideas will be mistrusted your fears will be discounted your instinct ridiculed Whatever you do, you will have to prove your worth, your ability, and your intelligence. And even uh, right before the sun shows up, like this is Adam and Eve's like first fight, and they're they're before you know always kind of with each other, always kind of holding on to each other, is like a source of of scorn. And right as uh, the sun shows up, they end their fight with Adam saying, "You're such a woman," and Eve says, "You're such a man." And kind of this 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 breaking that's happened, and then yeah, then the sun shows up, builds up these punishments, 
um, really getting into the subtext of Genesis three because it's in there. The the uh, I've got a copy of the good book somewhere. Here we go. Um, Milton, prefers, Milton preferred the Geneva Bible. Well, I'm sorry, Milton. I don't have the Geneva Bible on hand. But Seth, how dare you have a translation other than the Geneva Bible? But I have the NIV, so... Um, I was going to say next best thing, but that's not my opinion on the NIV, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, he says uh, it's it's three towards the end of verse 16. The sire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So it's like, yeah, the the patriarchy as a result of sin. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's not all bad. The son says, you will be deeply valued as a mother, the mother of all mankind, to which Eve says, well, that's good. But then, he says, but you will suffer excruciating pain in childbirth. Mm -hmm. wait son so long my children I will leave you soon <laughs> and then there's suddenly this desire for death which is oh maybe death is better than this horrible reality we've been given yeah but Eve also says, is it me, or did my punishment seem disproportionate to yours? Eve really does get the short end of the stick in both this play and the Bible. Mm -hmm. And having that line in there really makes it um, stand out. I think that's the great thing about all the humor in this play is that it very much has an undercurrent of, yes, it's funny, but then it's also, like, pretty much every joke is not just there to be funny, it's there to still drive home the point. Yeah, it highlights these elements of the text. <laughs> yeah. And then you get this whole thing of where they blame one another and also don't really want to blame one another, and it's just like, they're going to be banished from Eden, so they both hate each other, but they're also both all that the other has. Mm -hmm. And then this idea at the very end that shows up to them kind of out of nowhere of maybe we should do a burnt offering. Of course, then Satan returns. He's um, back in hell. Back in hell. Uh, she is very excited. He says, uh, what God took six days to make, I destroyed in an instant. Um, it, of course, all of her demons have been turned into snakes, uh, which is poetic. Well, well, they're they're suddenly turned into snakes. Right. They have been suddenly turned into snakes as God the Father shows up in hell. Satan says, serpents, how poetic. Well done. You're usually so direct. I didn't expect such biting irony. <laughs> Don't you love the banter between the father and Satan? Mm. Mm -hmm. It's just this, this re, this, the father constantly reasserting his, yeah, I knew this was going to happen. You can't surprise me. I, I knew it was coming. And then Satan kind of loses her temper there at the end. Um, she's just kind of ripping. Um, yeah, she's got this 
this soliloquy where she basically ends up losing control and talks about all these hateful things um, that she's going to do um, and talks about some specific examples of of things and, and yeah it gets like really gross because i think you can kind of make the argument that well what if satan's the good guy up until this point um because it's no longer you know this kind of celestial cosmic sense of indignation or vengeance it's not satan going i'm gonna get you because you threw me out of hell it's um then you know what i'm gonna do i'm going to uh cause war i'm going to create slavery and then she starts you know naming these things that allude to real world events um she says i'll enslave groups of people and force them to build pyramids pick cotton or manufacture license plates um i'll inspire your priests to tear children from their land and abuse them behind closed doors i'll incite waves of ethnic cleansing uh invent gas chambers and killing fields um i'll plant bombs in subways drive vans into crowds massacre children in schools it's um and i will make sure that they all know every moment of suffering every act of evil is all because of you and it's 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 no longer this kind of out there cosmic battle it's very personal and she's very much the bad guy mm-hmm And I think it's really well written because it by making these atrocities not historical things and making them very real things that you can pick out examples of in the past few years or the previous, I don't know, 10, 15 years of from whenever this this play was published and produced, I think like 2018. Um, they're all real life examples of it that are just, yeah, you see the, the pure evil out there. So it makes it very hard in the end to actually even if you sympathize with the character, Shields does very well at drawing the whole perspective. I wouldn't say, yeah, but look yeah. still what this also means in real life. Mm -hmm. oh. And then, yeah, we, we get into the end of the play. We have Adam and Eve's final scene. Michael is taking them out of the garden. Um, and basically, Michael starts playing a game of fortunately, unfortunately with Eve. Uh, have you guys ever played that game? No. Okay, it's this old, like, improv exercise where basically you're telling a story, but you have to, like, you're telling a story in a group, and you have to, the first person says, you know, a statement that, like, begins a narrative, and then the next person has to say, unfortunately, this happened. And the next person has to say, fortunately, this happened. So uh, towards the end of 5-6 here, um, Eve's like, uh, you will have two boys. Or sorry, sorry. Uh, Michael's like, you'll have two boys. And he's like, that's good. And Michael says, uh, one's going to kill the other. Uh, and Michael's like, but then there's going to be many peaceful generations. And he's like, that's great. And then he's like, but then they're going to be bad. Uh, and he's like, oh, no, that's not good. So he's just, he's just going through the entire rest of Genesis. Um, and the rest of the, the Pentateuch which is going, this happens, but then this happens, and this happens. Um, and <laughs> Adam's very final line, I think, still reflects that inherent ignorance that they still have as people. 
um, because Michael's like, uh, well, Eve asks the question, you know, what, what will our new rules be? Like, should we, are there certain trees we need to not eat from anymore? And Michael's like, there will be rules, but they're going to be more instinctual. You know, he starts quoting the Ten Commandments. You sh uh, thou shall not kill, thou shall not steal, thou shall not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And Adam's last line in the play is, what's a neighbor? Interestingly, you don't get this whole foresight of Christ's redemption revealed to Adam and Eve, which you do get in Paradise Lost, in Milton's Paradise Lost. Yeah, it is a little unfortunate. I think one of the one of the better parts of Genesis, the better parts of Genesis three, the more hopeful parts of Genesis three, is like the promise of, um, you know, one day your son will crush the head of the serpent that tricked you, mm -hmm. and I wish that was here. Yes, I I mean they did mention the crushing the her serpent's head thing earlier when they cursed Adam and Eve. It's just oh my goodness, did it. And I just totally missed it, and I spread false information on the internet. It, it's just they didn't have the whole reiteration of that point here that Milton has. Yeah, I, I would argue the point is still broadly made just earlier in the play, and I think part of it is the, um, oh, what would you call it? The, the mirroring structure to start and end with soliloquies from Satan. Yeah. So, on that note, let's get to Satan's last soliloquy. Okay, okay, sorry. The son kind of gives that line, except he says, uh, it, being the serpent, will try to bite you and you will step on its head. Yes. Anyway, Satan's last soliloquy that ends the play, <laughs> this kind of, like, desperate... Because before, the, if you stage this, the audience is going to be laughing with Satan... But now, because of this previous scene where, where Satan has lost her cool, lost her power over the whole situation, this, this final soliloquy is, is, feels really desperate. Yeah. Yeah, do you know what waits for them beyond those walls with original sin weighing heavy on their backs? They all toil day and night trying to bring forth life from barren soil, eating bitter shoots and grubs they find, crawling through their hair as they sleep. She will scream in childbirth, thinking she's going to die, but she won't, and they'll have a child after child until the cave they live in will start to feel cramped. So they'll buy another cave and go into debt and get jobs that relate to their skill sets and paint trees on the walls of the bedrooms of their children, and that goes on and on and on. And while they struggle to recreate the garden, the world of their youth, they will tr transfer an image of that garden to their children and their children and their children. But every image of that bliss will be slightly fractured, slightly off. So every garden will be a mutation of the garden that came before and the garden that came before that until the only constant will be the yearning for something lost long ago. There will be no more gardens. You knew that then. You know that now, but still, you strange, strange creatures, there you are with a fistful of seeds. Oof. And there, there's almost a compassion in the end of it, though. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, you strange, strange creatures, there you are with a fistful of seeds. 
Because I guess there might be a note that Satan sees humanity as having a hope and a yearning that could be fulfilled, that God the Son has left this mechanism to be fulfilled that Satan herself will not experience. Yeah. I think it's this, yes, this really interesting thing about human nature of contrasting the two views of like the angels are very much like kind of a utopian outlook of everything's perfect isn't aren't things so great up here and the demons are very much dystopian everything is awful we got to burn it to the ground and just there and then the humans are somewhere in the middle kind of muddling around and still have this hope for the future that the the demons can't see but possibly that the angels don't really fully understand yeah yeah it's like <laughs> uh is there any forgiveness for satan is <clears throat> is it possible for that character to like yeah see it's these two things we're like the, 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 do the angels ever really get it in this play do they know do they understand like the points yeah I don't know. Yeah. It leaves you with a lot of questions, and I really enjoy that, mm. while also having a lot of fun with the story on the way. And it's not often that I have so much fun with reading a play while also going, there's a lot going on in the subtext, and it's leaving you with a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah. Okay, okay guys. Um, so we've discussed the play. Do you guys have any concluding thoughts, any favorite moments or scenes or lines that you'd like to bring up? I think I, I mentioned it earlier. There's that one soliloquy kind of in the middle of the play where Satan's talking about them, what I think you described as particularly Canadian um, view of talking about you know beautiful nature and wanting to put a pipeline through it or looking for where to build a casino and um yeah it does scene five of ooh, somewhere uh doesn't beauty make you sick and that that idea that satan's talking about the the inherent appeal there of already being in inheriting this this global economic system um so why shouldn't you seize the opportunity and the kind of yeah the I think that brings like the the sympathetic nature that Satan is originally portrayed with, or at least the very the the kind of compelling idea that this sinful nature is inherently I don't know like um, something that outwardly seems fine or seems normal. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, my favorite moment in the play is we've talked about it. Uh, at length, but it, it's it's Satan's soliloquy in Act Two, Scene Two, um, and one one line that I, I really like that I don't think Brett ended up quoting um, is how she talks about uh, God's tool of oppression being love, and uh, she says, "Love, you say, yes, love, buckets of love, oceans of love." Um, if you're a lesser angel, you simply bob along the surface of it, but creatures like you and me, 
We sink to the bottom, flail our limbs, and desperately try to swim. Brett, what about you? What's your uh, ending oh. favorite thing? Oh, I, I, mine is the same soliloquy. It's ah. uh... <laughs> sorry, it's still your soliloquy there. What was oh, your no. <laughs> great minds think alike? Great minds like similar soliloquies, but um, yeah, it's just. But we like it for different reasons. I like it because of how well it kind of transmutes Milton's own soliloquy so that reshaping it for a modern context, mm -hmm. I think that, that is just so masterfully done so that whenever I think about this play, this soliloquy is what I think of. Thanks for listening to Mandatory Media, everyone. If you want to send us a message, suggest a topic, or complain about one of Seth's jokes, you can send us an email at mandatorymediapod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at mandatorymediapod. Our music is composed by Christopher Whitford. Our logo is designed by Michelle Tang. And the episode is recorded, edited, and mixed by David. If you want to hear more from me, you can visit workingthroughit.substack.com. And if you want to read more of my stuff, you can visit my blog, sethinthefilmscene.blogspot.com. If you would like to see any more of my work, you can visit linktree slash V. That is spelled L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash B-R-E-T-V. I do love seeing every now and then that some wildly famous movie actor does something weird or like very like theater kid energy attached mm -hmm. to it. And then the Instagram reels or like the news articles come out, you know, like, yeah, you got to remember this dude who is like the epitome of like American culture right now. He was a theater kid and he still is. Get him yeah. in a musical. You can't you can never escape the theater kid in mm -hmm. you. It's always there, just waiting to show up. Then someone puts on Hamilton at the wrong time, and you realize you still know all the words to my shot. <laughs> uh, and you start singing along, and people go, wow, were you a theater kid? And then you go, how could you tell? Uh, not based on a true story, but um, no, no, that would never I can imagine something like that happening to someone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. As good as Fiddler on the Roof it's very different from Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs>